welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Christ Bible Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm Pastor Levi Secord, and I'd like to thank you for listening. Christ Bible Church exists to bring all of Christ into all of life, and in doing so, we glorify God. This podcast series is not meant to be a replacement for the local church. It is not meant to replace your regular gathering with Christ's people across Christ's earth. And so we encourage you to use these sermons to bring glory to God, to bring all of Christ into all of life, and to strengthen and encourage one another in his name. With all of that in mind, let us turn our hearts and our minds now to the preaching of God's word, and in it may we see and glorify and emulate our Savior. What drives joy and happiness in life? Along with that, what makes someone a great person? And I don't just mean by like great, you get along with them fine, but an actual, a great figure in world history. These are questions that we all kind of ask ourselves from time to time. The number one reason why you make any decision that you make is in the pursuit of some form of happiness. Now it's true that you may have before you on any given day two bad options. And you weigh those two bad options and you think which one's going to be the least bad. That is, which one's going to hurt your happiness the least, make you the least miserable. We discuss this often throughout our Proverbs series. But what is often sold to you and me today as a path towards happiness is by every metric making us absolutely miserable. And the root cause here is that your life was never meant to be about you. It never was and it never will be. And this means your goal in life must not be your personal happiness. So much so, we saw throughout Proverbs that the word of the Lord testifies to this and that secular researchers are are now beginning to echo what Scripture says. What makes someone happy in life? Well, they tend to not live for themselves, live for something bigger than themselves, sacrifice for their family, and they tend to be religious. Go figure. It only took about 2,000 years for them to catch up. In John 3, 22-36, we are reintroduced to John the Baptist, and we really get his farewell a message to us from this gospel. And what we get is a glimpse of the one Jesus describes as the greatest one to ever live, up to that point. And we see some of his greatness in how he handles what appears, at least to his disciples, to be failure. How does he deal with this? This is how exactly many people would look at it, including his disciples, that his ministry is declining. It would be very easy for John to take that personally. And what we see in John the Baptist here lays out for us what it means to be great and what is the foundation for true joy and happiness in the Christian life. And it starts with this fundamental realization. Your life's not about you. Never has been. And it never will be. And the sooner you live that way, the happier, ironically, you will be. So today I want us to look at four truths of the Christian life that if we implement them, if we bury them deep in our hearts and our minds, they will produce deeper and deeper joy. And all of them are modeled for us here in John the Baptist. The first truth is is pretty basic. The first truth for living with joy in the Christian life, is to reject envy. It's to reject the comparison game. 
that leads to sinful discontentment, that fuels bitterness, grumbling, and distrust of God. Consider verses 25 and 26. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. Both John and Jesus here are are conducting public ministries of baptism, and John was the bigger deal first. He was there first. He had the crowds. He had the followers. The Pharisees were targeting him first. And now he is becoming the afterthought. You want to put it in modern terms? Jesus is trending and John the Baptist is not. His 15 minutes of fame have appeared to be over. And this can be a really hard challenge because we all want to be important. We all want our work to matter, to count for something. And I'm sure John the Baptist felt that temptation to envy and despair. And so his disciples come to him and they say, in essence, paraphrasing here, remember that guy who you said was the Messiah? Remember that guy who used your platform to build his platform? Remember that guy who used your influence to build a name for himself? Well, everyone's going after him now instead of you. You could understand the frustration of the disciples. Uh, They had probably, just like the disciples of Jesus, rearranged their entire life around this guy's ministry. To follow him. To support him. They were caught up in his fiery message and what he was doing, and they saw it as good as they should have seen it. That's ever a danger in the Christian church, is getting yourselves too attached to any given movement at any time. If you study church history, even recent events, you know that movements rise and they fall, often on the back of a charismatic individual. They rise and they fall, both in the church and outside of it. Many times they're unseen and unexpected, but the more we consider them from hindsight, we go, oh yeah, we see how that became a big deal. And Christianity is is filled with pendulum swings from one movement to the next. One movement arises because it sees the heirs of its parents' religion and then it creates its own heirs that their children will then rebel against later. Consider some of these in church history. The charismatic movement, only about 100 years old or so, arose in opposition to a really dead and passionless form of formalism in the American church. That formalism was wrong. I'm sure it was annoying, but the emotional excesses and absurdities like people barking like dogs and saying it's the Holy Spirit, probably not the solution. And I'm not exaggerating here. That's literally what they did. In response, more recently, in response to the material excess of of much of the seeker-sensitive movement in Christianity and the rich comfort of suburban Christianity, we saw overcorrections from men like David Platt who wrote the book Radical. Here's a radical way to live out your Christian faith. Christians should, should not spend any really money on themselves. Everyone should downsize. Everyone should sell their house, get a smaller house. Everyone should adopt children. Nothing wrong with any of these things, but perhaps uh, he goes even so far at one point to say you shouldn't pay for the treats in your kid's Sunday school class. It's a waste of money. He's probably never been around uh, low blood sugar toddlers. This is what we do in the church. We see problems and we overcorrect. We create new problems. 
the new Calvinism that marked a lot of men my age, including myself, was in many ways a rejection of their parents' form of Christianity that focused too much on the will of man and too much on decisionism or decisionalism in the church. And in having run in that movement now for 15 years or so, I've seen many overcorrections, including people not even know how to tell people that, yeah, you actually have to repent and believe as an individual. That's biblical. Everyone does need to do that. Every one of these movements began by identifying real problems, but eventually the movement became not about the pursuit of truth, but about the movement itself. Let me rephrase that. Because I very much am keenly aware that Christ Bible Church is very friendly with several movements. Every one of these movements identified real problems, but eventually the movement became more important than the pursuit of truth. And so it was about protecting the movement instead of obeying God. Movements are unavoidable, and they often do much good, but we need to keep our heads about ourselves. The movement is never more important than truth. It's never more important than following God. And if your movement is scared of the truth, your movement needs to die. And so John's disciples were playing this comparison game which was leading them to envy and covetousness. They said, John, your success is not what it used to be. It's not anything compared to Jesus's. And they just don't seem to get it. And so they're jockeying for prestige and position, ladder climbing, and making it all about status. And what we get is envy, jealousy, sin, and more sin. And I want to state this for you plainly today. Nothing will rob you of your joy more day to day than envy. Nothing will make you a more bitter person than always comparing yourself or something else in your life to something you don't have. There's a reason why the Ten Commandments pinnacle on this. Do not covet. All those other sins spring from that heart that covets. So you can wallow in envy in comparison and be undone in many ways. You can compare your looks to someone else, your job to someone else, your house to someone else, your spouse. Why isn't he or she more like that person? Your children to other people's children, your church to other churches, your ministry success to other people's success. The list could go on and on and on and on. And if you play that game, you will be bitter and you will be a small, sad little person. And I don't want that for you. Consider, consider Israel wandering around in the wilderness. Consider how they acted. God literally brought the greatest superpower in the world up to that point to its knees to free them. And they get into the wilderness and they start complaining. And they start comparing their life in the wilderness to their life in Egypt. And what do they start desiring? Slavery. I'd rather be in chains in Egypt than have freedom out here in the wilderness with God. It was better back then than where we are now. They complained to the Lord who saved them for saving them. The human heart is really prone to this. To never be content. Now I want to be very careful here. Being discontent 
is not always a sin. And sometimes we can set into a very sinful time of contentment in which we're content with our own sins. And that's not what we're talking about here. It doesn't mean, what I'm not talking about here, is that you shouldn't ever work to fix problems or shortcomings in your life. If you're single and you want to be married, that's a good desire. Take practical steps to that end in faith. But grumbling looks at this like seeing a friend who gets engaged and then getting jealous because they're engaged and you're not. That's what we're talking about. That's the difference between the two. It looks like sitting in that frustration and not taking acts of faith towards a good goal. Faith is not just waiting around on the couch and doing nothing and hoping God plops a spouse next to you. Apply it to whatever category you want. It's acting in faith, trusting that God will provide, and if he doesn't, you still praise him. That can be applied to any situation. A new job. Uh, A new school. Growing in personal holiness. Growing in relational holiness. Growing in your marriage. Whatever it may be. If you want joy in your life, And who of us don't? Stop envying others. Stop coveting what you do not have. It poisons everything. The next truth that must direct our living, that brings us joy, is the opposite side of that, which is trusting God's provision. I admit to you that verse 27 here, I think, jumped out to me the most this week as I studied this passage. John answered his disciples, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. John knew that his ministry wasn't his. It was given to him by God. John knew that everything he had wasn't ultimately his, but a gift from God. John knew that he didn't earn that ministry. It was given to him. To put it another way, you and I are surrounded by the grace and mercy of God every single day. His mercies truly are new every morning. Everything you possess has come from the Father in heaven to you. If you want to battle envy and comparison and discontentment, know that it is God who gives and it is God who takes away. What do you have, brothers and sisters, that God has not given you? Nothing. God is the Alpha, the Omega. He rules the past, the present, and the future. God created all things. He sustains all things. And He is renewing all things. And He has given you everything you have. Why do we complain? Our hearts should overflow with gratitude for his mercy. The clothes you wear, the car you drive, the air in your lungs, your heart that is beating, the food you eat, your continued existence in this world, your children, your spouse, all of these. Your spouse in all of his or her strengths are weaknesses. They all come from God to you. And we grumble. And we turn our nose up on it. Brothers and sisters, the fundamental shift from envy to to joy is found in trusting God's provision. 
John had worked his life for this ministry. He had offended a lot of people to get to where he was. He had a prophecy over his life before he was even conceived. And now his ministry has appeared to crater. It passed like a puff of smoke. And soon he will be beheaded for his ministry because of the sadistic desires of an evil ruler in his family. And he praises God. We must have this heart among us. Trust God's provision. Even the trials you have have come down from the Father. They are not random, but they are given to you from his hand for your good, to refine and shape you. They are painful, and they often in this life make no sense to us whatsoever. And there is nothing wrong with going to the Lord and asking for deliverance from those trials. But that's different than grumbling. Such thinking turns our heart to a humble gratitude instead of a bitter complaining. And I admit to you today that I failed at this multiple times this week. It's a really easy concept to understand. It's a really hard one to live out in the midst. This is why John is able to handle the seeming disappointment. This is why he can rejoice. Because he knows that everything he has, including his ministry, wasn't about him. It never was and never will be. And everything about your life isn't ultimately about you either. The more you think of yourself, the more miserable you will become. The self-esteem movement is an utter lie. Life is not found by thinking more about yourself. Life is found in dying to the self. And building your life upon something bigger than yourself. And so once we stop that comparison game, and once we recognize that everything we have is a gift, we now have the third truth that frees us up to have joy. And that is the call to work for Christ. You want joy? Live for Jesus. Verses 28 through 30. John continues, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, and I must decrease. So John compares his situation to that of attending a wedding. It's interesting, if you're following along in the Gospel of John, we've already had a wedding in this book. We've also already had discussion of purification water at that wedding, and this whole discussion began with a debate over purification and baptism. John views his life and his ministry as that as a friend of the bridegroom, or we would just say groom today, at a wedding. And he's attending this wedding, and he's basically saying, what kind of a small, selfish jerk goes to his friend's wedding and is angry that his friend's getting married? Now, of course, a lot of us can act in such a selfish way when we see others succeeding, where they have something that we want. But John's point is this. If I truly love the groom, why wouldn't I be happy for him? Why wouldn't I celebrate 
He realizes the wedding is not about the bridesmaids, the groomsmen, the guests, the preacher, but the bride and the groom. In the same way, our lives, our work, are not primarily about us, but they are about Jesus Christ. And this type of disposition gives us a freedom to live in joy. It's one of the strangest principles that runs counter to everything that you would think would work. But whatever you seek the most besides God, you will never actually get. And it will never fulfill on its promises. The more you seek something like happiness, the more it just slips through your fingers. The more you try to hold on to it, the less happy you get. The more you seek your own self-fulfillment and your own happiness, the more miserable you become. And so, you are called to imitate Jesus, to come and die, to pick up your cross, and to follow him, and then you will truly live. This is the deeper joy of gospel living. A joy that even finds joy in dark times. And I want to make this very clear. I know that John's teaching here is primarily in a ministry setting, but this isn't just a ministry thing. This is a whole life thing. It's not that your ministry isn't about you, it's about Christ. It's your whole life isn't about you. It's about Christ. You are not the bride or the bridegroom in this analogy. You are the friend of Jesus. This is Jesus' blood-bought world. You live in his world. It is his inheritance. He is the one making all things new. He is the one reconciling everything by the blood of his cross. This is one of the reasons why when we launched this church, and I've stressed it to you over these three years, again and again, all of Christ for all of life. That you might see your service to Christ and your faith lived out in Christ, not just when you gather together on Sundays. But that wherever you go into life, you have a ministry in which you are to be serving Jesus Christ. You don't need to be a full-time pastor to be serving Jesus. Wherever you go, whether you're the garbage man, the teacher, the stay-at-home mom, the police officer, the real estate agent, whatever it is, your ministry is primarily directed under Christ. And once you liberate your faith from the shackles of, se- of secularism, you begin to see that this whole world is bent under the weight of sin, but it is dripping with God-giving meaning and purpose. And Christ has sent you out into that world. So your work it's not ultimately about you, but it is about Jesus. Your marriage is not ultimately about your happiness, though I hope you have a good, happy, and blessed marriage. It is about Christ. Your parenting is not ultimately about you or your children. It's about Jesus. Your civic life is not ultimately about you. It's about Jesus. All of this life is to be seen in the view of the bridegroom who owns it all. And then we are free from the bondage and dead-end path of selfishness that offers a siren call of happiness through the self. It's not about you. And so John the Baptist says, he must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. Men and women who get this are marked by joy. 
And so John says, now my joy is complete because my ministry doesn't exist anymore. Could you say that? I'm not sure I could say that. I want to be able to say that. So don't be that type of Christian who's like an envious friend at the wedding who can't enjoy the wedding because of the comparison and envy and covetousness in our heart. Instead, be genuinely happy for the bridegroom who is Jesus Christ and rejoice with him. It's a celebration. That leads us to our fourth point. The call to not live for yourself is part and parcel with the gospel call. The call to come and die, to lay down your life for others. The obvious question then becomes, is such a way of life worth it? Like Levi, you're saying I need to completely reorientate my life, not around me, but about Jesus. I'm like, yes. Does that make any sense? Fourth point. Know the greatness of Jesus. Verses 31 through 36. How this section ends. John speaking about who Jesus is. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives uh, the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the theological justification for everything that just happened. Why would I do this? Because I've seen Jesus and I know who he is. Yesterday, uh, me and Tim were at a very frustrating denominational meeting Sometimes I run so much in our Christ Bible circles and like-minded churches circles that I forget how royally just messed up the American church is. I want to be very clear here. Christ Bible Church is not the only faithful church. There are many, but there are many who just, they don't even know the greatness of Christ. They don't know their Bibles because their pastors don't teach them the Bible. They care ten times more what the world thinks than what the Bible says. And it really does two things. It breaks my heart and it really makes me angry. I'm working on it. (laughs) And John here gives us four ways, four ways to see the greatness of Jesus. First, see his origin. Where did this Jesus come from? Well, John says Jesus came from above, and because he came from above, he is above everything. He's pointing back to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then later on, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. What is the greatness of Christ? It starts with his eternal origin. He is God the Son, fully and eternally God. He is the Creator. He comes from above, and therefore he is above everything. The call to lay down for your life something bigger starts with this. You are not laying down your life for something as small as a nation. You're laying down your life for the one who created everything. Second, the greatness of Christ is demonstrated in his mission. 
verses 32 through 33 speak of Christ's witness and testimony to the truthfulness of God's testimony. Then in verse 34, we see this, for he, that is Jesus, gives the Spirit without measure. The whole first half of John 3 was about how do we enter the kingdom? You have to be born again. How are you born again? The Spirit blows wherever it wishes. How does that happen? Jesus gives the Spirit without measure. This is his mission. That he went to the cross to die on behalf of his people for their sins, rose again in victory, and then he comes and he imparts the Spirit to his disciples. And the church is founded. Eternal life comes through Christ pouring out the Spirit with the Father. The hope of the Christian is all tied up in Jesus who baptizes us with the Spirit. Third, you see the greatness of Christ in his authority. Verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. I've got to add this to my growing list of statements of Jesus' universal authority in the New Testament. It's, it's stressed so often that I'm, I'm really puzzled as how we miss it. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Not some things, not some parts of life, all things. Everything is in Jesus' hand. He is above all and he holds all things in his omnipotent hands. Is following such a man worthy of your life in your all? The Bible says yes. What can you lose if you are united by grace through faith to the one who owns everything? The answer is nothing. You can lose nothing. The one who overcame death. The one who reigns at the right hand of the Father. Like you and I, we, we have these puny little things we're clinging to. They're like, I really, really, really don't want to lose this. You can't lose it in Christ. He has all things. Jesus is worth your all because he is over all and holds all things. And fourth and finally, you see the greatness of Christ in what he accomplishes. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has, present tense, has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The greatness of Christ provides eternal life. Without him, God's wrath remains upon you. Christ gives eternal life to all who fall on their face in humble repentance and faith. And so Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, can declare Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For Christ has risen. Eternal life has come. The greatness of Christ centers on the cross, the empty tomb, and the ascension. And joy is found in the surefire hope that his resurrection has sealed your resurrection. And that by Christ, all things are being made new. This is the concluding testimony of John the Baptist in the Gospel of John. He's lost his standing, he's lost his popularity, and yet his joy is complete. Why? Because he sees Jesus as he is. He is willing to give his life, not figuratively, but literally, for following this man. And so he rejoices. You want happiness in your life? I do too. Stop making it about you.
Stop trying to force happiness through achievements, relationships, and other small things. Solomon reminds us in Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities. Stop the comparison game. Don't compare your job, your house, your success, your kids, your spouse, your possessions to others. Kill the envy monster with extreme prejudice. Praise God with every breath you have for everything that you have. Spend your life at home, school, work, or in society, not pursuing yourself, but pursuing and declaring Jesus Christ. Pick up your cross, the instrument of your own death, and live. And do all of this because you have seen the glories and the wonders and the greatness of Jesus Christ. For his kingdom is forever. And he is making all things new by the blood of his cross. Rejoice in the greatness of Christ and God's provision, and you will have joy even when things don't make any sense. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you speak to us in your word. We thank you that you have given us the example of John the Baptist. And that in his seeming failure, even then, he declares, Behold the Lamb of God. See his glories. See his wonders. Lord, may we be a people that see the greatness of Christ and realize that we are losing nothing in following him. And may we then be marked by joy. A sure joy that Christ has risen, Christ has ascended, and Christ is coming back to make all things new. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Christ Bible Church. Remember, this world is dripping with meaning because Christ created it, he sustains it, and he is reconciling it all to himself. Now go and live out that glorious truth.